1: For free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: All of the interviews for today's episode of Life's Iraq were conducted in the Halifax Regional Municipality, which is located in Migamaki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back. I'm Kyle Moore, my life's Iraq, blah, 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 blah. And you, you're just catching me at the end of Jazz Night. So, uh, in the spirit of Life's Iraq, let's hang uh, let's out, let's do this together. You know, because that's what it's really about, right? Is is doing it together, you know, collective space to feel, have some fun, you know, for the love of all things good. Talk a little mental health. Like, uh, let's kick things off the way I start all my interviews. You know, how am I doing, right? Hey, well, what's new? And 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 thank you. First of all, thank you for asking. It's so kind. I've been living, you know, like riding the ups and downs. Just all of like those those generic sayings. But the key part of the living is that like I feel like I've been living in the moment, which is not exactly like a like a traditional like a normal behavior for me, but. I mean, you got to try it because like, wow, you know, it's like, I, it's nice. And I mean, like I haven't posted a podcast and I don't know, it's been, a, it's been a while. I don't exactly know how long it's been. I'll add it in post, but hi there, Kyle in post, uh, five months, five months. So a little, uh, little longer than expected, Five months. Okay. I've never felt better because, like, this podcast in particular, this is like a love letter to all that we've done with Life's a Wreck. It's, it's what, it's what I want to do moving forward. Honestly, like, it's like, it's an ode to storytelling. You know, shine a light on all things mental health and, and give us a platform to do some, do some good, have some long overdue chats. Like, I don't. This one's just, this one just feels a little bit different. And it's amazing what you can do, what you can accomplish when you do it for you, and you do it for love, with love, through love. This episode, in its entirety, it's all about the future. It's about the future of this podcast and about the mental health care system in Canada. And I really can't wait because right now, when you look at the mental health care system, it's like a, it's like a. I'm a little inspired by it. It's like a band out of sync. You know, it's just a little off, right? It's a wreck, but that's that's why you come here because in every wreck, there's a story, there's beauty, there's potential, and I think that's the case here. The instruments are, are there. You know, when time is developing the sound, I mean, we can make some serious music here. Like we can make something that'll bring everyone out of the woodworks, pull up a chair into the lights instead of the shadows, you know, finally give them an anthem, make music collaboratively. And all we have to do is get this beautiful little wreck to So with that being said, I mean, let's, let's meet our players. When we talk about the future of mental health and you know, my mind thinks like science, research creativity it's our guitar you know riffs of creativity it's beautiful it's explorative that's the sound of the work of Dr. Sean Hill and our band needs a heartbeat right a driving force a bass rhythm a march a pull forward Dr. Carolyn Bennett and the work that she does is the first ever federal minister of mental health and addiction and what is the future without soul without a familiar sound a familiar sound that's ours you know a voice of the people. It's the sax. It's personable, it's unique. It's an amplifier of what we put out into the universe. That's Car Nichols and the work that's done in all of our communities by the Canadian Mental Health Association. Now, this is our sound. This is the future of mental health care in Canada. Welcome back. Welcome back to Life's a Wreck. Amen. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty cool little intro, eh? I mean, you know, I don't want to I don't want to do my own horn, but like Mm I going to give a huge shout out to uh, Willem Gabe and Martin uh, for the help of the jazz i 'm going to make sure that uh, all of their uh, socials are, are linked in the the show description but uh, yeah that was fun that was that was a good one um, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a different a uh, little bit of a different vibe and I guess I mean if you wanted to, we can ask the question of why right like why switch it up? you know I loved what we 're doing with life's a rec, and I really wanted to keep everything going, but everything kind of shows so there was this one day you know I was covered in mud. Uh, I was hard at work landscaping, literally like I am today. I'm recording from a flower bed on my break. And I was inspired by an episode of my favorite podcast, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. If you haven't listened to it, I mean, you're missing out on some of the greatest, like, auditory storytelling that I've ever heard. It's, Pushkin is just, they're fantastic what they do. And, you know, if you think that I'm out here sitting in a flower bed on my break, trying to kiss some ass, okay, first of all, you're absolutely right. I'm a free agent, Pushkin. If you want to hit the line, just let me know. We can make something happen. But basically, I'm, I'm sitting in this flower bed and I'm listening to this episode about experiments. And that's when best-selling author, Canadian icon Malcolm Gladwell, all of a sudden, just started to play with his wand. Right? It, w- it was a ma- it was a magic wand. It, well, there was a penis test. Um, okay, yeah. There's no real great way to say this. But basically, he went to some of the world's best minds, and he said, hell with the morals, money, and any limiting factors. What's an experiment you would do that would answer some of the biggest questions in your field? And one of the people he posed this question to was Harvard University child psychologist Joyce Benenson, who said that she would do the penis test. Do the penis test. Oh, just do a a quick little penis test. I was going to see how many times I can get penis tests in this episode. And I don't want everybody to start freaking out or thinking that this was some, you know, sick little experiment It was very, it was a lax, you know, kick your feet up kind of little procedure Where she would basically take her magic wand and bippity boppity boop She would cut off the penises of XY chromosome individuals at birth Attach them to XX chromosome individuals with their parents being none the wiser Then as their parents raise them as their perceived gender Dr. Benenson would examine how their behaviors and interests develop over the course of an entire adolescence yeah okay Uh, Benison thinks that if this was done properly that this would provide concrete data to show a parent's impact on child gender identity it's a magic wand experiment that settles nature versus nurture it's amazing and so I I was thinking about this and I was listening to this going like and the way that it was all you know uh, edited and and just kind of presented was just absolutely beautiful and I was like I'm listening to this and I'm like okay well what would this look like for mental health you know, what's an experiment that would push mental health forward? And then I started to think, well, not just an experiment. I mean, I don't even know, what does what the future of mental health even look like? What does the future of mental health care look like in Canada? You know, what are the pillars? And what do I think of when I think of the future? You know, I think of three main pillars. I think of research, legislation, and then you and I. And so I figured we'd start with the research and all of that. It's what's brought us here to this flower bed on this day, and what made me ask friend of the show, Cam H, Sci- Cam H. Scientist, Dr. Sean Hill. Oh, I was everything was going so well. No, damn it! Shit! It's a plane. Friend of the show, Cam H. Scientist, and the scientific director at the Kremble Center for Neuroinformatics, Dr. Sean Hill. What's your penis test?
3: That's a fantastic question. Um, you know, in a way, I, I think as we talked about the last time I was on your your podcast, I mean, one of the core challenges is really understanding the ways in which specific circuitry in the brain is altered in the context of different mental health conditions. And we know that there's you know, some changes in excitability. We know that there's changes in connectivity. We know that there's disruptions in the homeostasis of circuitry and rebalancing with sleep, for example, and it leads to sleep disturbances. But what we really can't do today and I would love to be able to do is to really systematically map out the excitability of the thalamocortical circuitry. Okay. And, that, and that would be something where you would be able to look at that in, in high resolution and over time over the course of the the lifespan because we know that for example if a mental health condition starts with anxiety and maybe evolves into depression and evolves you know later into in life potentially into neurodegeneration right there's all these things happening within the brain that we simply don't know mm-hmm. and there are there are indications that you know some very core aspects of you know, the brain energetics and the ability to maintain a balanced excitability, all of that is disrupted. And that's part of what leads to this neurodegeneration down the line, but we don't, because it doesn't cause obvious seizures, for example, um, we don't have any way to see it. And so part of the big problem in mental health is we sort of call it mental health and not neurology because Mm. we can't see it because we can't do that brain scan right that actually
2: reveals well what is underlying so how does one go about making something like this happen you know actually seeing it because i don't know about you but i'm imagining like monitors dissecting brains bring the car battery in well naturally it's actually a very very big challenge Mm. (laughs) thus the beauty of the magic wand
3: exactly that's why i was like great give me a magic wand (laughs) we could do this but today we have tms transcranial magnetic stimulation which as you know can be used for treatment Mm. right it can it can induce plasticity in brain circuitry but it can also be used to map the brain Mm. the problem is is it's extremely coarse Mm. so it's very granular at the spatial scale and it's it's really not super precise and so we need, you know, somehow a finer scale, uh, more precise kind of probe. Mm-hmm. Which, and and there's lots of different techniques kind of being investigated, but we don't have anything mm-hmm. fundamentally today. We don't have anything that really gets us at that level. Brain imaging is very coarse grained mm-hmm. and and uh, you know spatially, and it's it's you know, a millimeter cubed, and then temporally, it's quite slow. So we're just we don't have that tool. EEG kind of brings together the activity of large populations of neurons. So it's spatially very coarse, temporary, temporally, very precise. Mm. But again, we're, we we don't have that combination of spatially precise, and, um, and, and temporally precise, as well as what is unique about this is, it, with TMS, you can actually ping, like you're kind of, you're tapping on the brain circuitry to see its response right Right. to see is it is it really excitable or not and you need that kind of perturbation you need to probe the brain circuitry and and again that's something we just don't have at that level of precision today
2: yeah i suppose the pitfall with this magic wand is that dr hill needs tools that just you know aren't built yet And and sure, we can use the magic wand to make the machines, but that's a lot of nuts and bolts and figuring out where they go, and I'm not great at following instructions, so we have a lot more future to talk about here. Right now in Dr. Hill's world, think about it like we have Pong, Pac-Man, Super Mario Bros. No, seriously, the transcranial magnetic stimulation that Dr. Hill talked about was first used in 1985 by Dr. Anthony Baker, the same year that Nintendo released the first Super Mario. We're surrounded by amazing technology, and advancements in said technology will absolutely help Dr. Hill and his team exponentiate the growth of the tools they do need. But right now, we're just experiencing the dawn of not only mapping the brain, but listening to it, translating the universe of information between our ears. The question now is, how far away are we? Turns out, it's less about how far away we are, and more about how can we make it safe.
3: Well, there's a lot of different techniques that are being developed. There are many techniques that would Move us in that direction. now, the question is is when will that actually be safe to do? Right. So for example, there there's optogenetic techniques um, where where there's a you know essentially a virus introduced to create these neurons that are sensitive to light, so wow. then you could you could kind of do some very targeted stimulation. But it will be a while, I think, before we're able to do to do that wide scale across the whole brain in the way that we would want to really map it out. Fair. But we're, we're getting some new tools that will that will gradually get us there.
2: Fair enough. And I can imagine that, uh, you know, building those tools in itself is an entire process. Obviously, last time we chatted, um, talking about these uh, artificial intelligence tools that are being built, uh, the multi-scale models and everything like that. It's extensive, one tool at a time. Like it certainly has its. Uh, I think baby steps may be the right way to put it.
3: Absolutely, it's it's it takes a lot of time, and then you know I think along with that we have to really think about um, what's the practical reality. Even mm. if we have the best tool, right? The magic wand is a nice experiment, but the reality is, is even if we were to develop today the ability to scan an entire brain, the time that it would take, the expense that it would take, um, and the fact that, well, why would somebody come in to do that? Right. Right, to do that full scan. We need proxies. We need other measures that that are much, much uh, easier, lightweight, scalable, and part of everyday life Mm. to assess mental health Mm. and brain health without having to go in and do these, these in-depth scans right. until they're really re- needed, until it's really clear that that's what's required.
2: I think that this might be, um, and you know, by all means, you can uh, tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, but uh, I, I do think that this is an interesting transition to kind of brain machine interfaces, um, which was something that I wanted to chat with you about today. Um, uh, specifically, I know that uh, especially a lot of people at my age are um, enamored by uh, Mr. Musk, uh, Elon uh, Musk. <laughs> Everybody's always talking about everything that he's doing. And Neuralink is something that I do find very fascinating because I think that the idea of... Um, stimulating the brain very precisely and being able to essentially cure um, a, a wide variety of ailments, that seems like right now it's kind of being pitched as this is the future of brain health, um, something that, uh, you know, is, it's targeted, it's personal, it uses, uh, it uses AI. I'm really curious as to kind of uh, what your thoughts are on brain machine interfaces and how you think that they could play a role in the future of mental health.
3: Right. Well, I think in combination with the kind of mapping that I was talking
2: yes. about, right, if you can
3: identify those specific circuits, of course, the ability to precisely intervene and and alter the circuitry that is disrupted, that is showing this hyperexcitability, for example, um, that would be, of course, the promise, right? Mm-hmm. That would be ph- phenomenal if we could if we can do that kind of targeted uh, stimulation today with something like deep brain stimulation, right, it's, it's, it's really much less precise, we don't really know exactly, you know, we're kind of electrically stimulating this part of the brain, and it's, and it's affecting many, many nerves throughout the, uh, throughout the brain. So we're not yet there to that level of precision. Now, of course, it's tempting, it's, you know, to to believe that something like Neuralink, would be able to, to address that level of precision. Mm Um, I think we've got a long way to go before we're really <laughs>
2: at that level. So you may not find yourself on the operating table getting your, your fancy new brain chip anytime soon, but but what is here now? Enter the wonderful world of neuroinformatics. Neuroinformatics. Just a, By the way, just a great word if you want to slip into a conversation. Sounds smart. Just, oh, that just reminds me of this thing I was learning about with uh, neuroinformatics the other day. It just works like a charm. Dr. Hill and I talked about neuroinformatics the first time he was on the podcast. and I'm not going to lie. I've just been thinking about it ever since. Informatics is the study of computational systems, especially those for data storage and retrieval. And when you marry this field with neuroscience, you get neuroinformatics, an area of research that uses complex data analysis, artificial intelligence, and computer modeling to uncover new insights about the brain. And the more that I was learning about this, what I was imagining in my head was this, this big orb and a artificial intelligence, an AI kind of almost like floating in the middle, and data being provided, being put into this orb from different channels from around the world, and this orb, this little this little learning, being able to take this information and develop new research. And so I, I thought about this, and I wanted to kind of share this with jacques and I just, you know, I wanted to ask, are we at the point where these models can compute the data from two sources who may have never, never crossed paths otherwise? Very much so in the sense
3: that scientists around the world are generating evidence, data, measurements of real brains. Mm -hmm. um, And the job of neuroinformatics is to fit those puzzle pieces together. And so it can, exactly as you say, these can be pieces of evidence and understanding about real brains Mm -hmm. that we need to learn principles from and fit them together into a computer model that help us make predictions about an individual brain, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that what's what's important is that it's it's really a core part of neuroscience. It's just to learn these principles. How does the brain function? What are some of the key pieces of information that we need? Mm-hmm. What are some of the key data points that we need to to inform these models? And then we want to apply it to individual-level predictions. So there we need to know a lot more about the individual, about mm-hmm. their 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 social behavior their sleeping behavior this Mm. type of thing in order to parameterize those models it's good to dream big Mm. but in the end part of part of what you want to do is you want to dream big in the right direction and that needs to be anchored Mm. (laughs) you want to be anchored in how do we actually ultimately make this transform Mm.
2: patient care so where do you where where is that immediate focus for you right now? Because I think that that whole idea of taking the right step in the right direction, what is that right now for you? Right. So it it really is, for example, studies that,
3: you know, and this this has come about through collaboration with clinicians where we're saying, well, what would be the most informative piece of information to help you treat each individual patient? And one of the things that almost across the board, all of the clinicians have said, we would like to know how our patients slept in the seven days before
2: they came in to the clinic. Author John Steinbeck once said, "It is a common experience that a problem difficult at night is resolved in the morning after the committee of sleep has worked on it." Doctor Hill thinks that the future of mental health might lie in being able to listen into those meetings.
3: Tur- <laughs> and it turns out that that's incredibly relevant at the neural level, right? And understanding the excitability of the brain and the state of the brain, right? Actually is informed by, well, what kind of sleep deprivation was there? Was there interrupted sleep? Was the sleep architecture altered? And all of that, at the same time that it's extremely relevant to a clinician to say, well, we've got to see about how do we we address this this core uh, disruption, it's also helping us to say, okay, so there can be this disruption in the ability of the neural circuitry Mm. to re-equilibrate and rebalance itself.
2: Uh, So it's a, it's, it's exciting. Absolutely. Are you able to based on, I I mean, I guess it would kind of be tough to, to predict, be like, oh, I bet you this person in seven days is going to have to go into the doctor's office. So the idea of once they go in, are you able to backtrack and say, based on the patterns that we're seeing post going to the, we're kind of able to predict what it was like?
3: Absolutely. I mean, we've, we're, we're building up this data bank of, you know, thousands and thousands of patient trajectories, and as we're accumulating additional sleep data, um, as well as their response to treatment and as well as, of course, in the context of you know some disorders like bipolar, that mm-hmm. sleep disruption can be a key indicator of a manic episode. Wow. And, and so it is predictive, right, to be able to, and you could potentially, we're not there yet, but we could potentially use that as an early warning system to say, mm-hmm. you know what, Let's let's intervene now before this becomes a crisis, because we can see in the sleep patterns that this is headed towards you know, a, a critical point.
2: When I when when we're having all of these conversations, and I know that, that we just kind of did touch on it, but when I had first like emailed you and I said we are going to talk about the future of mental health, what was the first thing that popped into your mind? Because I think that like it really does seem like you are building this future, like the idea of. Instant personalized care as a response to whether it's, um, you know, longer wait times or stigma that exists, whatever it may be, that that's building the future, in my opinion. And that's as somebody who struggles with his mental health on occasion and, and thinks like, wow, how amazing would this be to have this thing that's basically just saying, hey, man, notice that your heart rate's this, you know, you're, you're not having these nutritious. Right. Boom. All of a sudden, it's like, OK, I can attack. I can tackle this right now when you yeah. hear future of mental health is is that exactly where you go or is there a few other things that pop into mind well
3: i think part of what we're learning is that we need a system that keeps evolving mm-hmm. right that keeps that that keeps because i think what is mental health today and what the factors are that are that are disrupting mental health is going to continue to change mm-hmm. and so we need a system that is responsive to that and that is responsive to changing needs in society and changing resource demands, um, right? As we know, you know, a, a pandemic sure can disrupt things. No, you'd you think, <laughs> right? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so we need to be responsive to that and understand, well, you know what? There's a different set of needs coming out with the fact that, you know, there have been a lot of children with disrupted social lives and, and other young people, mm-hmm. right, with disrupted social lives, Disrupted interactions and disrupted sleep, possibly because of increased usage of these devices, and maybe there's a new, you know, future TikTok which right. really inter- interferes with sleep. Right. Um, I mean, I would to... think that
2: the current TikTok probably also does very <laughs> much interfere it's, it's, with sleep. It's pretty
3: good at it. <laughs> exactly. It's already handling that pretty well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but but we need to we need to be able to to continue learning and adapting. And developing new therapies and and ways of managing mental health. Mm. And I think that's, that's part of what I sort of learned very quickly, is that if we don't think about the solutions for treating mental health in the context of a system that is providing that care, and of how do we move the responsiveness of that system to before things become a crisis right we, and 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 for me that's really critical because it's you know we've we've got to get it into the hands of every citizen that it's part and parcel of maintaining a healthy life that here are some tools that can help you here are some resources so that we don't get to the point where you know where somebody's losing their job or they're having family family crises because of of a mental illness and right now that's really hard and we've got to we've got to do better
2: a better system eh huh catching me on my lunch break that's amazing so (laughs) like amongst the ai brain mapping light sensitive brain viruses and neural implants dr hill emphasizes that the future of mental health care is preventative and personal doesn't that just doesn't that just have a ring preventative and personal that's you know he recognizes that a system has to be developed that helps canadians before those crisis moments i agree You know, I've seen firsthand how our mental health care system has failed, not only the general populace, but those delivering the care and changes need to be made. Are we moving towards a holistic system, though? Are we moving towards a system that is preventative and personal? Are we taking steps in that right direction? You know, when we're sick, feeling mentally unwell, we should be able to see a doctor, right? Well, you know, (laughs) it's kind of the whole point. It's a bit tough. But if the system is sick, you know, where does it go? And it turns out, well, you know, just like us, it sits on a wait list for forever, and then it also goes and sees a doctor. Just last year, Canada appointed Dr. Carolyn Bennett as the first ever, and I'm serious, last year, first ever Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. And she also has one of the best Instagram bios I've ever heard. Former family doctor, now the system is my patient. And if you don't think that that is a bar, I I do not know what to say to you. Dr. Bennett has been working in and advocating for Canadian healthcare for over 40 years combined. 20 as a family physician and the rest in various political standings. If anyone knows this system and knows where it needs to go, it's Dr. Carolyn Bennett. Is the creation of Dr. Bennett's new role a step in the right direction? Where does she see her future as she literally hands-on works to build it? I think it's about time we asked Dr. Bennett what took Parliament so long in creating the much-needed position that she occupies today.
4: St. Stephen's—that's a lovely place. We went for supper there begged? to to the the gastro pub there. That went, Five Kings. Uh, Five Kings. Yes. When we, no way. When, when we came down for the the uh, caucus retreat at, yes. at, at St. Andrews, yeah.
2: That's—I I was actually working at St. Andrews at the time as a uh, as a server down there at one of the restaurants down on the water.
4: Oh, that's great! Yeah, so uh, there you yeah. go, and and it really uh, and it brought beautiful. us here. So
2: so wonderful. Um, <laughs> I was actually at Five Kings just the other day. So yeah, quick shout out to uh, my favorite restaurant in uh, Saint Stephen, Five Kings. Um, great, great,
4: great seafood chowder.
2: Sorry, I mean, I, I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't include a little love for Five Kings in Saint Stephen. There, I mean, like. I'm a, I'm a bit of a homer. What can I say? Okay. And now we roll on. Well, I,
4: I talked to my friend, Monique Bejean, who was the godmother of the Canada health act and, uh, and about how, how did we get here? Hmm. Um, as you know, when the Canada health act came in, only, only doctors and hospitals were covered in terms of that promise with all the provinces and territories. Um, but at that time, kyle probably the psychologists the social workers occupational therapists were all in hospitals
5: mm-hmm. and
4: it was only in the cost containment years you know of the 80s say uh, that that all those people got turfed out of their offices in the hospitals and and moved either to the private sector into mm-hmm. employee employee assistance programs or or in into the charitable sector, hmm. and so now, um, with not only the the stresses around COVID, but the toxic drug um, overdose crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the provinces and territories chose to have a separate minister for mental health and addiction, um, starting in, in BC with Mm -hmm. Judy Darcy. And, um, and so I think, you know, as I now have a number of colleagues um, that are all focused and we it's, it's, it's really exciting that the prime minister decided that, that there should be someone at the federal level who Absolutely. can actually focus, you know, on not only this terrible overdose crisis, mm-hmm. but suicide, um, but also the kinds of uh, what we're working on now, mm-hmm. b- building some standards on mm-hmm. on building out the mental health capacity amongst family doctors uh, right. virtual care and how how exciting that is that people maybe if they're going away to university can keep their counselor um it's wonderful you know or you know in New Brunswick you can ha- end up with a counselor um in French if that's mm-hmm. what you'd prefer um virtually and so i think there's there's going to be um really important um way forward we Things that happened in COVID, we we now need to make sure we don't roll them back and mm. that that progress continues. But particularly this business of people with COVID admitting they're struggling and admitting yeah. their families and maybe struggling with mental health, maybe using a little bit too many substances, uh, and that they they feel comfortable talking about that. So mm. I think I think the the prime minister has been very clear uh, in terms of the you know his the struggles his mom has had Um, but I think when the prime minister asked me to do this I said but prime minister we also have you know, in our federal family, this mm-hmm. isn't just the relationship with provinces and territories. Yeah, amongst our federal family, whether that's First Nations, Inuit, Métis, whether it's the armed forces, veterans, corrections, mm-hmm. the RCMP, uh, uh, and the public servants, that that those all have, are struggling and have mental health outcomes that aren't good enough and um and so it means we have to address our federal family Mm -hmm. at the same time as we're talking with the provinces and territories who have that that direct responsibility um Mm. um for 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 health care
2: wow no it sounds like you're busy yeah I can yeah. just imagine so. Well, it's really amazing to hear. I think that when you touched on that that stigma point there of the idea that on, a, on the uppermost level, on the federal level, that it's finally kind of at this point where now everyone's becoming a little bit more comfortable with the idea of talking openly. And that obviously is something that trickles down to every level of government and obviously municipalities and the people within them. Um, but it's just really amazing to hear as somebody who has gone through his own mental health challenges to see a government address the problem head on and say, listen, not enough's being done directly to uh, um, the benefit of Canadians in this particular sector that's been a major sector, but, but has been kind of just like, uh, you know, it's been lumped into other things. It's kind of been like brushed into the corner a little bit, but now it's time to bring it out into the forefront. And it's amazing how much, uh, how much changes when you just really just take away that shame.
4: Yeah, and it was interesting. Uh, I was at the global mental health summit uh, a couple couple of weeks ago, and the um, you know I, I got to talk about um, you know boast maybe about the the first um, director general of the World Health Organization, Dr. Brock Chisholm, um, was a Canadian war vet wow. um, who and psychiatrist mm-hmm. who was the first one I think that really coined that phrase. There can be no health you know without mm-hmm. mental health there yeah. can be no true health and i mm-hmm. think that that's what people are starting to understand that we actually really do need to to understand it the holistic it's like um, you know there on uh that you know knowing that the the first nations and the medicine mm-hmm. wheel that keeping people well mentally yes. physically emotionally spiritually that not just waiting for people to get sick and trying to patch them up, which is the sort of more medical model, the way I was trained in medical school, you wait for somebody to get sick. Mm. And so this whole disease prevention, health promotion Mm. needs to also be part of our planning for mental health and wellness.
2: Absolutely. We'll we'll absolutely touch on uh, more of that as we kind of move forward. But this episode, as I had mentioned at the beginning, we're talking about the future of mental health care. We've got some amazing voices on this uh, episode Um, and when I say, I mean, uh, first of all, when when you do your research on Dr. Carolyn Bennett, it's it's phenomenal. The work that you've done within healthcare for so long, it's it's just it's really inspiring in a way to see somebody dedicate, uh, you know, such such major portions of their life to the betterment of the people around them. I just think is just such a beautiful thing, and so. When I come to you and I say, "Hey, we're going to talk about the future of mental health care in Canada, You're in such a unique position. I would really love to to know like what comes up for you when I say that, the future of mental health care in Canada. what does that where does the mind take you?
4: It takes me back thirty years, Kyle, unfortunately, you know, cause absolutely because because I accidentally ended up in politics because of the fight for women's college hospital. We thought we were doing um the future. Mm-hmm. We thought that, you know, we were supposed to get married to um what we thought was a big institution that wasn't that progressive. And so we were fighting for doctor to interdisciplinary, hospital mm. to community, patients as a true partner in their care, the social determinants of health, poverty, violence, the environment, yes. shelter, equity, education. And I think how what I'm finding now as as we are Plotting the future of of health, mental health, it's it's like all those things are now in the center of my desk, mm-hmm. um, rather than off the side. And so I think that that's um, you know it is exactly those things. Like say doctor to multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. we have to expand our understanding of what is the mental health workforce. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is about um, everybody. And and just as you were saying that. Increasing that mental health literacy Mm -hmm. so people understand their emotions, can name them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That the self-care that can take place when people understand that they've lost a loved one and they're grieving. But that's not a depression. (laughs) Um, That's normal. Um, If you're studying for an exam and you're anxious, that's stress. That's not an anxiety state.
2: What I find so fascinating about what Dr. Bennett just said there is that there's this very human ripple effect that can take place when you give citizens the proper language and education to communicate what they're experiencing. This is what a preventative system looks like. When at home, we are learning how to help our family and friends and peers communicate effectively about mental health, when that happens, we are able to help each other. Our mental health care system is filled. with individuals who weren't given the tools and language and support to recognize mental health challenges or patterns associated with mental illness in their early stages. And then just instead, they're just left to their own devices. And when unchecked, these symptoms can lead to an increase in things like self-medicating, addiction, and crisis moments. And now when forced into the system that we have already set up, you have to treat these symptoms with reactionary care. And the symptoms are much more severe and treatment takes longer. I think that the phrase of we have to expand our understanding of what is the mental health workforce speaks volumes because of the profound effect education can have on stabilizing our current system. When you and I learn how to talk about mental health and are there for each other, educated and willing, we both stand a significantly better fighting chance
4: we actually are trying with uh, the mental health literacy dr stan Kucher from dalhousie you know who's now a senator has been working on mental health literacy for a a long time and helping Mm. get it into the high schools yes but there's now a mental health literacy handbook for parliamentarians Mm -hmm. um and for our for our teams to make sure that we're we're naming things properly and that you know you know the the idea that that people can help one another navigate Mm. um to better better supports dr Kucher, when he was uh working with the pan-american health organization the who he used to be able to go into communities um uh, that you know after an earthquake or a volcano or a flood Mm. and train the barbers and the hairdressers and the and the taxi drivers and the bartenders to be able to to look at somebody they know and realize they're not themselves, mm. and how do we help them navigate um, to care? And I, I loved um, recently there was an article, and then uh, there's a small documentary out of Quebec um, about how the black barbers are therapists. <laughs> that that that, when you sit in the chair for a while, and or hairdressers. How do we? get that health literacy up so that yes. everybody can help that the teachers the
2: Yo, absolutely the,
4: right and the, you know I think you know as a camp counselor I think I was somebody that was a little bit trained to how mm-hmm. to deal with people's feelings whether it's homesickness or whether yeah. it's that we all we all need those skills right absolutely. and and whether it's elders and knowledge keepers, whether it's the kinds of people that that people just naturally go to, how do we how do we just make that mental health work for sort of all of us? Absolutely. Um, uh, and 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 make sure that, that it's not only about letters after your name.
2: It takes all of us, no doubt. But how early is too early to start having conversations like this. You know how early is too early to implement this mental health literacy because I know in my experience when I kind of recognized something was was off per se, you know, off with the quotation marks mentally, when I just wasn't feeling 100% when I wasn't feeling right, I just didn't, you know, something felt off but I just didn't really know what it was. This was like late elementary school, maybe even earlier than that. And so are we going to start implementing this in in kindergarten? You know, when, what does that look like? I mean, how early do we start having these conversations?
4: Well I think that probably it starts prenatally. Okay, I mean, it
2: turns out even earlier than that.
4: Healthy moms and let the moms be able to to identify, you know, one in my mandate letter it says perinatal mental health Absolutely. um you know we need moms to be able to admit they're struggling mm-hmm. cuz otherwise there can be disastrous yes. outcomes. And so how do we move all the way through to that that almost invisible period between birth and hitting the school system, Mm -hmm. um, that are there the supports there to identify the children that that have special needs and be able to get them the wraparound they need? How do we get them through the school system um, with Mm. teachers who are comfortable identifying somebody that might need some some special um, care or or, or or you know accommodation and and it's it is about us looking forward i think to to that that time where you know i used to say the grade 10 health class shouldn't just be about putting a condom on a banana
2: like that that would be great (laughs) yeah
4: like how about we talk about feelings like a, a lot of men my age used to say to me, oh, I don't... Doctors say, yeah. oh, I don't do feelings. Mm. And and hey. you go, hey. I get it. Like, I, <laughs> uh, but You've got MD after your name. You've got to do feelings. This is about people.
2: Mm. Yeah, this is about people. I like that. I know, I'm not saying I understand a Dr. Bennett because of my extensive medical background, which is obviously null, but I'm saying this as a man who's grown up in a, a culture that uh, I've heard that line before, I don't do feelings. It's just... You know, admittedly, it's a little nice to hear that a, a federal minister of mental health is, is recognizing the need for emotional care when building a mental health care system. Yes. And,
4: um, and so I, I think it's going to be um, really important that mm-hmm. as we, you know, when I probably was in medical school, um, the people didn't talk about cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, mm. giggled uh, in the House of Commons when somebody mentioned breast cancer. Like it's, you know, it seems I think so far come, fetched
2: to think about now. Yeah. And now yeah. I think
4: we've come a long way, but I yes. think that, that, uh, that you're absolutely right. Uh, for that, that time, um, in, in young people's lives when things are changing. And, yeah. you know, I think when you think of, of those life changes, and are we preparing people for hmm. the, for their, Changes in their bodies, changes in their in their feelings, changing in their you know uh,
5: Everything, you know their,
4: all days. their all their relationships yeah. and uh, and and helping them identify what's normal and what really you know is not mm. and and how 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 quickly we can get them the help. So what we say and and again what I've been saying for thirty years probably is we need the most appropriate care in the most appropriate place by the most mm-hmm. appropriate provider at the most appropriate time but the most appropriate place is now sometimes virtual yes. right yeah,
5: the absolutely. most appropriate
4: provider may not be you know somebody with letters after their name and 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 it is about us really um, understanding really the holistic picture mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of uh, of mind, body, and soul, right? Yes,
2: absolutely. It uh, does my soul a little bit of good to hear you say that, uh, you know, in, in your position. I also want to know, this is something that uh, the idea of when you're uh, building something that's so, uh, that in my, you know, just, you know, limited view would seem like it's something that would take so long to build. It, it's, it's it's stepping stones. It's building blocks and we have to do everything that we can in every moment we can to further that. With, um, no necessary, like there's no necessary guarantee that another, um, uh, upon a next election, that everything would be continued forward. I find that sometimes you can kind of see where people will want to say, well, that was done well, but now we want to do it our way. And the work that was done previously, now some areas might continue, but some areas may not. And so I guess between um, uh, elections, how do we ensure that the work that's being done now continues to be stepped forward and there's not that, you know, four steps forward. Okay. Now two steps back now, four steps forward, now two steps back.
4: Well, we don't want four steps forward, five back either. Right. So it's, it's, but I think that the, you know, like some of the things that, you know, there, you know, we had 10 years where harm reduction was, had been taken out of the drug policy. Um, You know, that we thought we'd move forward um, and, and then it got rolled back.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I think I've always believed, and whether that's public health or whether it's 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 mental health and addictions or any aspect of public policy, you have to have Canadians with you. Yes, you have to. You can't jump out ahead and say, now, this is good for you.
5: Um,
4: We actually have to bring them. And that's why the data matters. Mm -hmm. It's why, you know, in, in what I see as a triangle between research policy practice. Mm -hmm. So from the research, if you can show people the evidence that this works Mm -hmm. and then translate the knowledge into a policy and then the political will to get it into practice. But then we've got to have the applied research coming back up to better questions, so that so that we can actually continue to measure that it's working. You have to embed all of that in a the engagement of citizens mm. to show them that that we can move this far more quickly, absolutely, in the right direction if mm. they're sort of pulling uh, what we need to push. And I think that that you know if we had really good evidence, if we put iodine in the salt that we could yes. prevent thyroid disease and governments weren't doing it, mm-hmm. the citizens would say, "Where's? how come I don't have iodine in my Absolutely. salt? Yeah. So, and so, so that's the way I feel about mental health, that we've got to get that information and the evidence out. So citizens are pulling mm. um, good public policy.
2: Just about to head out, but those those three words, I just got those three words of rattling around my head: research, policy, practice. Research, policy, practice. Those words just stick. You know, I mean, grant. I think I heard something you know somewhat similar earlier in the episode. You know, but, you know, but that's the podcast, right? Like Dr. Hill, Dr. Bennett, Car Nichols. It's the three pillars of our future system. That's a testament. Yeah, <laughs> that is a testament to putting your feet in the right direction before you take that first step. The system is new. Like people a hell of a lot, a ton smarter than your boy have been looking at this system for a while. But I believe that right now that we've got good people trying their best to help people. And that is a that is a system that I can believe in. And every day that we figure out what works and what doesn't, but it's still new. And I know we're new. We're just moving into this policy stage. And I know that we're just kind of like, you know, in the infancy of this policy stage. Because as we forge a mental health care system... You know, last year, for the first time in our country's history, we appointed a federal minister of mental health and addiction. That is, that is, that is the toddlership of policy. You know, we are, we are right there. That's, that's a
5: step.
2: That is a step. You know, what Dr. Bennett is doing, when you look at, when you look at the timeline of mental health care, that is a timestamp. That is a fixture in the history of mental health care in this country. And then there's, and then there's the part that we play. There's that last step. Practice. No, we're talking about practice we ain't talking about the game we're talking about practice man now, practice practice is a lot of things right like practice in a system sense you know you're making your voice known to local members of parliament you're voting for people who want to continue to build a mental health care system bringing some fire to the stone ages you know like but then there's also the role that we play in our homes and in our lives that are the reason that the, that system is there you know it, it's how we treat ourselves talk about mental health how we support one another be there for the community how we talk to our children about mental health how we teach our children about mental health how we heal from our trauma so that they don't become somebody else's we handle a turbulent life and the stresses that come with it how sometimes we put our fucking knuckles in the dirt and we just keep going i love that saying that if you want to change the world you got to change yours if you want to change this world start by changing yours so how do we do our part how do we how do we go about that change how do we do our part of maintaining a mentally healthy community and what role does the Canadian Mental Health Association play in that community of mental wellness? Well, you came to the right place. Let's find out. I'd like to introduce you to the executive director of uh, CMHA Nova Scotia, Carn Nichols, with a simple question, just, just to give us a framework to build on. What is CMHA
0: A good question, and a nice place to sort of set a foundation. Um, so, CMHA is, uh, as I said, part of a federation. We've got national, uh, we're a division, and so the things we tend to work with, although we do do specific programming, but the things we tend to work with is are more pan provincially related. Um, And then we've got branches. We've got three branches throughout Nova Scotia, one in Halifax, Dartmouth. We've got one in Truro, Colchester, and then we have one in Southwest Nova. And um, basically we run, uh, we have the same kind of mission and vision. You know, our mission is really to uh, ensure that all people in Nova Scotia experience good mental health and, and well-being right at its very core and then our vision really is about you know mental health being a universal uh, you know human right mm-hmm. and so we work within that sort of framework and um we serve uh at the grassroots level the branches have um programming that talk a lot about um there's they're sort of tied to being uh, part of society social mm-hmm. wellness programs um and uh, it really depends on the market where they're situated as to what kinds of programs they have uh mm. and uh they serve the local communities very very well mm. so you know which is fantastic yeah and that's the whole point right so um and then for us we've got a number of programs uh throughout the communities that sort of layer over that uh mm. and so um there's sort of three things that we're focused on at the provincial level which is educate And I'll talk a little bit more Mm. about that in a bit. Absolutely. Uh, Navigate, which we've talked about already, which is just, you know, uh, you know, every week, you know, today I've had at least two calls where people have said, you know, I need some treatment for this. Can you advise Mm. me how I would get access to that? And uh, and then supporting uh, folks Mm. on their journey that way and then advocate. And that's the other piece we could talk about later, perhaps. And that really is, you know, talking about the things that are important to Nova Scotians and trying to really be a partner with the government in, allow, you know, allowing those to happen or creating awareness around them as well. So, mm-hmm. but in terms of the, the programs that we offer, um, we have a couple of different things that are going on. Our One of our core programming is really around education and training, as I said. And so we've got community programming, which is mm-hmm. um, things like stress management, uh, mental health in the workplace, you know, developing psychologically safe, uh, workplaces. And that's something that's coming up more and more these days as people Absolutely. are returning to work and the, the kind of the blended uh, work uh, situations. Uh, we look, work a lot uh, in the space of, of um, suicide prevention. Um, we do assist training. We do a training called Resilient Minds, which is for firefighters. Um, we've got a program called Changing Minds, which is what they what I would call mental health literacy, which I think everyone should take.
2: You know, if I didn't know any better, I'd, I'd start to think that there was a bit of a theme going on here. It's so funny. Wow. Uh,
0: and, and a few other programs. But the other um, uh, initiative that we started this year that we're super, super proud of and really pumped about is called Thrive uh, Learning Center for Mental uh, Wellness and Wellbeing. And that is um, basically a school we can go all go to to learn about our own mental health. and and wellness and it's free it's It's free it's free so that's that's the beauty of it it was um it's not our idea there is a movement called uh, recovery college which is uh based out of uh england and essentially it's a a model that allows community members who have lived experience to design the programming that will be delivered to those in community as well it's super powerful And uh, yeah, so we've just started that up in January, sort of a soft launch in January and and just sort of getting the momentum going now. So we have an advisory board made up with folks with lived experience who will advise on the types of programming that we need. And then we've got a whole catalog of uh, programming that we put out each quarter. And depending on, uh, you know, kind of what topics are hot, we have everything from, well, I made a list here today, uh, the art of friendship. Uh, managing your own inner critics, setting boundaries, mm. managing conflict—everything that is becomes something. It seems that, like
2: very fundamental things yeah, that, like yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, you do on the day to day that uh, that can left unchecked can really be a detriment to your mental health. But obviously, just bringing the awareness to it yeah. becomes so much more easy to exactly.
0: manage. Exactly. So the things that you want to have, I always think about them as your toolkit, right? Or what are the things we yeah, can oh, learn absolutely. to you know put in our toolkit and then pull them out when we need them? And it is fundamental you know, um, uh, uh, you know, tools to be able to communicate uh, in in a healthy manner that can generate deeper relationships that keep you connected, you know, and that's connections at the source of so much too. And we kind of don't really pay attention to that in the way we probably should, you know. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Which is funny because after two or three years of disconnectivity, yeah. when it was kind of, uh, yeah, you were very kind of secluded and everything, you'd think that there would be this heightened uh, awareness of, oh, wow, I think being around other people and like in this space would be like really beneficial. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And sometimes you're right. You don't really uh, understand how much you need it. Like you need it in your heart and soul until you don't have it. And then you're, you're feeling a little off and you get that connection. It's kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, that was, that's what I needed that, to feel my well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, especially so, if you're an introvert, like you don't necessarily search for that stuff, but you do need it still. Right. You still need that connection. Oh yeah.
2: Connection is something we need more of. That's black and white, cut and dry. There's your headline, your title, whatever you want to say. It, it just, it's, it's so crucial, especially at a time right now when we are, just more disconnected than ever through the pandemic, through this kind of rise, continuing rise of, of digital connectivity that's taking that human element, just kind of throwing it by the wayside. You know, to have healthy homes, we need to connect. Healthy relationships of any kind, doesn't matter what it is, need to connect. Healthy communities, we need to learn how to connect. And we learn how to connect by learning about each other in general. CMHA helps facilitate that connection through the range of programs the more literate we are on mental health the more that we can connect on on a, on a human understanding but what i think is even more just kind of uh, relevant is just human acceptance learning about the you know who our neighbors are learning about why things are the way they are it's 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 you know it's just education the more that you know about something the less scary it is the more open to it that you're you're likely to be and so connection is just that education that connection that's that's so key CMHA provides a mix of free and paid programming all of which is educating the communities they serve to better understand so many so many of those little nuances of mental health the paid programming can at the current moment present a financial barrier. And now this is something that both Carn and Dr. Bennett touched on when discussing the social determinants of health. And Carn made it, made it very clear that she wants to make this programming as accessible to Nova Scotians as possible. I mean, earlier in the episode, you can hear the excitement in, in being able to offer the Thrive Learning Center for Mental Wellness and Wellbeing to our communities for free. But it unfortunately makes sense given the current system of support for charities like CMHA who need to cover their costs to run these programs. Now, as we move forward towards a more literate future, we need to, like, this is on us, we need to work together to find ways to allow CMHA to deliver these programs to our communities while still keeping the lights on. And that comes down to something that Dr. Bennett said, which is making our voices known, making these, you know, as a community, making sure that we put our support behind policy that is put in place to help support programs, not just like CMHA, but, but you know, those programs who want to deliver this mental health literacy to our communities who want to bring us together versus just kind of like driving us apart or trying to make a quick buck and that's the beauty of it is that like this is something that we can do this is something we can actively engage in as a community and anytime you get a group of people who want to champion progression who want to move forward collectively you know that's i i like our chances so how does cmha provide these programs how are they structured
0: We've, we've done this dance that I think, you know, all the uh, organizations that have been sort of offering programming have done over the past six months in particular, where are we in, are we out, are we in, are we out?
5: Hmm. We've
0: just decided that we're primarily uh, virtual for now. And there's upsides and downsides for sure. There are some, some programs, um, the assist program, for example, needs, it's very prescriptive. There's a certain way that they need to be, uh, teaching the course that has to be in person but beyond that they're all online and um and uh, the majority of them are free so that that's good exactly. beyond but beyond that i didn't um uh that's the education component of what we do we do some other um really great programming too that's very kind of enhances or um creates some su- sort of sustainability around things like thrive so we've got a uh, whole uh person a person who's actually dedicated to what we call peer support and as you know you know when you are living with uh, um you know mental illness or you're you're sort of um struggling on that spectrum then it's always nice to have someone to sort of talk to who can relate to you and and sort of um
2: 100%
0: navigate it through so we these are kind of emotional and practical support between two or more people that share common experience and so in the past mm. we've had um, these groups we have ongoing groups that uh, are, are that are occurring every week but the those that have mental health challenges you know specifically men for example
5: mm-hmm. who
0: yep. you know that is a special target audience that that they are there's an opportunity for them to develop some of their social emotional learning some of the um Uh, literacy that we've been talking about so uh, Mm. but we've done it with indigenous youth and farmers and you know all all kinds of folks so it's it's just though that's really powerful and it's a great way of kind of build. I feel like it's kind of like building the muscle memory for Mm. some of the things that you learn and thrive for example right it's kind of like Mm. you know graduation let's go to peer support I I was just gonna say
2: it sounds like a graduate program (laughs) kind of thing
0: exactly I think about Think about Thrive as like 101, and then the peer peer mm. support is taking it to the next level and putting it into practice. So.
2: How does somebody get involved with the programs or something like, yeah, like, like yeah.
0: Thrive? Yeah, so uh, our website has all the information and uh, the access points to kind of get involved, register, whatever. Like the, Thrive is fairly easy. It's just through um, Eventbrite and, you know, signing
2: up as okay. you would. Um, the other programs you would just the COVID classic yeah, event, right? I know. carried absolutely carried the world this past couple. I of know, years. I know, it's
0: just amazing. Um, yeah, so we have that. We have um, a program called CAST, which is Communities Addressing Suicide Together. That's a series of programs that we do in community to support um, uh, suicide prevention in communities. Uh, we've we're and it, it, it just depends on the local community. So, for example. In Portapique, uh, we're working with um, Holly Carr, who's a local artist. She's run, she's written this beautiful or illustrated this beautiful book about uh, being afraid in the dark. And uh, we're creating story trails. And um, so there's evidence around, you know, building story trails and education around these sorts of things that allow our communities to build resilience, which is really a big part of what we do. It's building capacity and resilience across the province. So. Mm.
2: In terms of actually in Nova Scotia right now, this is just like, as we've been talking, I've been kind of thinking about how um, having this community-based approach, I I find, I think it's so amazing and it's so interesting. What are the issues that you're finding right now specifically in Nova Scotia compared to maybe some other parts of Canada?
0: I think uh, I, I can't speak... Well, I can in some ways because we do uh, stay connected to our brothers and sisters across the, mm-hmm. the federation. I would say many things are quite similar, and that's sort of the mm-hmm. as we are emerging from COVID, and it's sort of the you know what what's left in the in the rubble, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of um, you know they often talk about the tsunami which will come after. COVID as people sort of emerge and realize that they've, there's a lot that they've lost and they're, they have to sort of process a lot of those things. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting because uh, I'll share a little story. I think, you know, as we're talking about building uh, community capacity and uh, working, you know, more fully with government, you know, we're, I'm ex- we're exploring along with the office of addictions and mental health, A program that uh, one of the the minister actually minister comer actually uh, grabbed this article from mclean's magazine and it was about how the cmha in newfoundland 30 years ago um, came together with some funding from federal funding to develop this wonderful program um, for those that were suffering uh, from displacement from the cod moratorium and so that's before your time, but not before my time, but essentially 30 years ago, they basically shut down the fishery, which was, you know, the lifeline for so many communities, like a hundred thousand people were displaced in Newfoundland wow. and they were forced to move out of their communities. They were, you know, the left without identity because their jobs were lost. And so um, they, they CMHA got this funding and they put together this very, very simple program, which was essentially training social workers to go into these communities and train um, community leaders, like not formal community leaders, like, like the postmistress, the church leaders, mm. the rotary leaders, right? To um, be able to train in this sort of, it's called, I think it was called, the program was called self-help or something like that. It was kind of a, not a great name, but essentially. Yeah, the
2: marketing team yeah, just took a couple of days <laughs> exactly, off. Exactly, you know? exactly.
0: But what it did was it gave people the tools to be able to be supportive with each other in community during these really tough times how to how to have conversations how to how to be active an active listener like we're not yeah. we're not taught that stuff in school right we just sort of pick no. it up some of us are better at it than others and so if if we can you know spread that goodness out into community and really build those roots deep and broad then our communities will be healthier, and it's such a simple mm-hmm. and elegant way of addressing it. And I and I do think there's opportunity throughout our province to do very similar things that are absolutely. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. No. It's just about human to human connection, and you know, listening. I think we, you know, that's the other thing about COVID is that we've turned to these things, these pho- yes. phones, to become our source of of everything. And the, and Mm -hmm. what's gets missed is often that connection. And I think that that's what we have to start reinforcing again and giving people the tools how to do that, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think that that just speaks so much to like, the The soul of the maritime yeah. in terms of like the that that community, that connection that's seemingly starting to kind of be lost a little bit, but you know I came from a community of five thousand people. I know for a fact that in that community, the postmen or the principals of the schools or any of those exactly. kind of people have such significant social pull and then as soon as you get uh, the bug in one year yeah. you have an entire community and and i and i as you said it's back to basics we're talking all about the future of mental health in this episode yeah. but it doesn't take you know 5g and a brain chip it just takes talking it's that it's that complete chain of human connection yeah. which i just think is lovely there's a, there's a real irony there don't <laughs> yeah. you think yeah yeah I, I very much do uh so what can we do then you know Karn gives me hope that there are people in our communities who see the importance in all of us and that's amazing. But what I find so fascinating is the fact that in that story that Karn just told, you know, the the, the soul of that story, the theme, it's, it's an echo of what Dr. Bennett was saying earlier, that we need to broaden our horizons. We need to broaden our idea of what it means to be a mental health care uh, provider, a mental health care worker. You know, it's, it shouldn't just be the determining factor is the letters that come after your names. You know, there is a responsibility that we each have to be able to to provide a, a certain level of care to ourselves and to those, you know, directly around us, to our, to our communities, to our friends, to our families. And it's so fascinating because it's not like the, it's not like Karen and Dr. Bennett had an opportunity to sit down and for a cup of Joe and and compare notes and say, hey, let's get on the same page uh, before we both go get interviewed by, uh, you know, some random guy from from Halifax. You know, these are two people who are at differing levels of our current mental health care system who, who you know, they, they share this, this core value of the importance of the individual and, and education and, and literacy. And it's just really amazing to see that, you know, for, for a band that I thought was so out of sync, that there are some really strong drum beats that they share, that there are some really strong tones that just sync up so perfectly. And it just gives me, frankly, a little bit of hope. So so we're here now. And and how about first steps? What's an actionable piece of advice that Karn would give to all of us? Well, turns out we gotta go break out the old record player again.
5: no one could be so sad.
0: Again, it comes back to basics. That's like starting yeah. to sound like a broken record, but I think
2: if anything, it's, it's kind of, it's powerful that yeah. it's just continuing to go back to what's yeah. always been the case.
0: Yeah. Isn't that true? Um, yeah. I think, you know, what came out of our, you know, research for our strategic plan was that there was a real um, opportunity with school age kids, for example, to develop, um, you know, social emotional learning around, um uh literacy you know you know how do if i'm feeling something inside how do i describe that and because if you grow up and you don't have the ability to express something it just manifests itself in so many negative ways now
2: yeah yeah you end up starting a podcast well that's
0: that's a that's a bonus it
2: turns out out all right eventually yeah exactly take some time but you get there you know
0: (laughs) So I do I do think that there's an opportunity for families to come together, stay connected, yeah. don't rely on these things all the time to yes. entertain, you know, conversations, uh, deep listening, connection, um, you know, and and also reaching out in community. Like I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of you know elderly folks out there who would love to be, you know parts of lives of other people who actually need that connection as well. Like, I think there's lots of wonderful solutions to how do we, how do we create a connected society that actually um, supports our mental health journeys in a really positive, positive way.
2: I was going to start the outro here, but there's actually one last question that I really wanted to share with you all. Um, And it's my favorite question. It's my favorite question that I ask on any podcast. It's why you can ask it to anyone about anything. It's the universal question why so I asked Karn. why why does she do what she does why get involved why care why mental health why CMHA just why
0: uh, t- two reasons I think um one would be that as I said I think you know mental health is something that impacts us all it's something I thought a lot about you know throughout all my entire career and I always you know thought that I was the only one who had these thoughts about you know I'm not feeling you know like I'm like everyone else that I've got these issues going on but it turns out that actually everyone does and so it's kind of it's nice to be in a position where I can sort of create a platform to have these conversations and kind of you know take the take the mask off and de, demystify it all right because it's yes, super exactly. liberating right at the end of the day right and the other one is that the people i work with are like amazing like the thing is that we, in working in mental health a lot of the folks that are attracted to work here have lived experience and i've learned so much about humanity and humility through that 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 Um, You don't necessarily get in in other sectors in the same way. It's all there, I know, in in everywhere, but it's like full on. And I am so um, moved every day by the the quality of people that I work with that come to work with their hearts and their souls wanting to really make a difference in this world. And I am I'm just so privileged to be part of it all. So that's (laughs) why
2: good people trying to bring about good for their communities. That is a structure, that is a system, that is a model that I will always believe in. I wish I could say that we were <laughs> I wish I could say that we were uh, finishing this episode in another beautiful day in the flower beds, but we got a storm rolling in. So, I don't know. I think that there's something poetic about this. So, at this point in the project, now we've heard from the voice of research, policy, and practice. We have our instruments, and you know what? I'll say it. They can play. Our system has its flaws, and nobody is blind to that. But the nice thing is, is that nobody's blind to that. With everyone we've talked to, there's an acknowledgement that more needs to be done. At every level of our mental health care system that people are being failed every day by the system that we currently have what i've learned though through all of this is that there are good people who are trying people who care about people in positions to affect positive change in a system that that needs it on that day in a different flower bed listening to malcolm gladwell wax poetic about experiments you know penile and otherwise I didn't know if I would exactly feel any kind of sense of relief after venturing down the rabbit hole of what a flawed system's future may look like. But like in so many cases, the first step is admitting that there's work to be done. And and we've heard that. You know, it's cool. Like, it's really cool. These conversations, these people, they affirm my faith in something, but you know, it's hard to place. It's not necessarily in that the system, you know, will be fixed tomorrow, right? Or like a week or or months or, you know, maybe even a year from now. Because good change takes time. And systematic change, you know, that takes even longer. We have to be realistic in our rec. That's the soul of this podcast. But I think it would... I think that I could best describe it as faith in the future of this system's character. I think that we need to make our voices known. Support people in initiatives. Striving for a more just mental health care system. Educate yourselves on mental health research. Write those letters. Dial those phones. Find your soapbox. You know, in your own life, tell your buddies you love them. For sakes, with your kids, you know, their life... A universe incarnate. Give him a hug. We are the future. Woo! (laughs) But if we are the future in each one of us, then we need to be responsible and educated. That's why I believe we need to learn from our past. We need to learn to listen to this land and the people of it. Listen to these little plants that I spend so much time around. I think to understand where we're heading, it would be irresponsible. It, It would be blatantly irresponsible of us not to understand and learn about where we've been that sounds like a fun episode right sounds like next time on life's a wreck speaking of where we've been i mean there's no other way that i'd want to close this project out love yourself first be kind to yourself and others and be curious god what a beautiful wreck and let's get it start let's start this journey together. I don't really know where this is going. It's kind of the fun part. So as, uh, yeah, as we go, hopefully this will, uh, this will be a great place for you to start your physical wellness and mental health journey. And I look forward to doing it together. So this has been episode one. God, I know life's a wreck, but that was the podcast.